Now, in order to introduce you to this Catholic vision of things, we'll be taking a sapiential view of reality, which means we'll be looking at reality in its totality, from its very inception to its final terminus. And let us begin then with a discussion of God, the Alpha, the beginning, the font and source of all things. In order to begin to see the world rightly, that is to see the world through a truly Catholic lens, one must first and boldly make a leap, an intellectual leap. One must assert that the direct objects of our seeing, tasting, feeling, hearing, all the material things that occupy space are not the totality of reality. That reality is not limited to that which can be sensed. That there is there's more to reality than what meets the eye. To see like a Catholic is to hold to a deliberate view that what cannot be seen, what can in no wise move into man's field of vision, is not unreal. The fact is that true reality is that which is beyond the scope of that which can be sensed. It is the ground which makes all of other reality actually possible. Now, this intellectual leap into the abyss of the immaterial is difficult, right? It requires a certain courage, a certain boldness, a certain act of the will, particularly for us moderns who are uniquely, I would argue, wedded to the material, to the sensible. But it is absolutely necessary for the health of the mind in order to see the world as it truly is. Now, thankfully, throughout the years, there have been two useful academic disciplines that have devoted themselves to the study of the mysterious world of the immaterial namely the disciplines of philosophy and the disciplines of theology. Now, it must be stated from the beginning that both these disciplines, philosophy and theology, are distinct academic disciplines. But as we shall see, they are also ordered and related to one another. So let us begin. Let us first turn and consider the lesser of these two sciences, philosophy. All disciplines, regardless of the discipline that you are pursuing, are determined by the object of their inquiry. Mathematics is mathematics because it pursues a certain object, namely numbers. Astronomy, astronomy because it pursues another certain object, namely the celestial spheres and the, and the bodies that occupy the heavens. And philosophy is philosophy because it has as its direct object of inquiry, being, being qua being, ens commune, or common being. The philosopher looks out upon the material world and considers those things that are existing and ponders what is the, what is the one thing that all these beings have in common? And he concludes that it is existence itself, being itself. And this is what he considers. He carefully strips all the material limiting qualities away from existing things, 
and considers the immaterial mode of existence itself. And then once he has done that, he's not complete. He then turns and naturally begins to ponder, what is the cause of existence? Who or what causes the very act of existence? Who or what is responsible for causing the things that exist to exist? Now, importantly, these questions about the source or principle of existence is a natural inquiry, right? The philosopher moves from created material things to the universal or common immaterial attribute of existence found in created things to the immaterial cause of existence itself all by himself, right? Without the, the aid of any kind of intrinsic, extrinsic help or, or aid. He is simply using his native or natural faculties of knowing of human reason to arrive at a conclusion that there must be some source, some font, some cause of all existing things. Now, throughout the philosophical tradition, there have been a number of philosophers, a number of philosophers who come up with various different arguments that prove the existence of God. But arguably, the most popular rational argumentation for God's existence is found in St. Thomas's uh, Aquinas's Summa Theologiae. And so what I want to do now, we don't have time to kind of go through all of St. Thomas's arguments, but of which he provides five, but I want to at least touch upon one to show how the, the native philosopher moves from things that exist to conclude that there must be a God. So I want to turn to St. Thomas, particularly question two, article three, of the prima pars of his summa. And I want to look at the fifth argument for God's existence, which is an argument from the governance of the world. He writes, the fifth way is taken from the governance of the world. So he's looking out and sees how the ordered, that the cosmos is ordered, right? that it's not haphazard. And he begins, he says, we see that things which lack intelligence, such as natural bodies, act for an end. And this is evident from their acting always or nearly always in the same way so as to obtain the best result. So out there in the, in the world, there are these things, these natural bodies, things that lack intelligence. And these things are always moving to an intelligible end. And the only way in which it can move towards an intelligible end that is only if it understands the end, which requires some degree of rationality. He continues, hence it is plain that not fortuitously, but designedly do they achieve their end. It's not by chance. It's not by happenstance that these things on a natural level move to their end. Because if it was by chance, it would happen randomly and rarely. But as he says, this is not the case. It's not fortuitous, but designedly. It happens all the time. And so chance is ruled out. Now, whatever lacks intelligence, he continues, cannot move towards an end unless it be directed by some being endowed with knowledge and intelligence, as the arrow is shot to its mark by the archer. So he gives finally an example here. Just as an arrow in and of itself lacks intelligence, 
but it it orders itself or it seems to order itself intelligently, right? It always hits its mark. It always hits its bullseye. So there's two ways in which this thing on the level of nature, this natural body can achieve that end. Either itself has intelligence or it must be governed by something with intelligence. We know that the arrow lacks intelligence itself, therefore concludes Thomas, that the arrow must be directed by something with intelligence, namely the archer. And this is true on the natural level. Say for a bird, a bird builds a nest and it does so not by chance. It happens all the time at a certain season using a certain material. The bird itself either has intelligence since it's moving intelligently or it must be directed by something with intelligence. It itself does not have intelligence. Therefore, concludes Thomas, that these things on the level of nature, these natural bodies, must be directed by something with intelligence. And as he concludes, therefore, some intelligent being exists by whom all natural things are directed to their end, and this being we call God. So again, this is one argument. Moving from the created world to proof that there must be a being that is the cause of that created world. Importantly, once the philosopher has explored this common understanding of being, being in and of itself, and has demonstrated that there must be a first cause, causing being, which we call God, the philosopher is not yet finished. He's not yet completely satisfied. Once he figures out that God exists, the philosopher naturally desires to know the manner or the mode of his existence. And using, again, his native, natural, rational faculties, his power of reason, he, began, he can begin to rationally prove some attributes of this divine being, of this God. He begins to make some rational claims about what God is like. He can rationally conclude, for example, that if God exists, this God must also be simple. That is, not composed of parts and not part of the cosmos itself. He must be perfect, right? lacking no actuality. He is pure act. He must be good. That is, not undesirable. He must be infinite, right? not having things that limit um, finite things such as matter and form. He also must be immutable, which means um, unable to change. He's eternal. He's one. Right? There are not multiple gods. So the philosopher, again, with unaided natural human reason, can come to some pretty profound conclusions. Yet importantly, to know that God exists and that he is one and that he is perfect and that he is good and that he's infinite, etc., 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 is not all that satisfying. He still desires to really know God. It's analogous to a child who has never known his father. Right? Such a child will know by the very fact that he exists, that he must have a dad. That his father does in fact exist or has existed. He might also have to do some basic qualities about his father, about his dad, such as that his dad is presumably a human person, that his dad is obviously male, that his father has or had 
actual functioning reproductive organs, right? So he can do some things. But the child knowing all these things about his, his father is not satisfied with this limited knowledge. He desires to know more. He desires to know more, to know him intimately, to know him personally. He desires to understand him, to understand how he thinks, to understand why he does the things that he's done or is doing. And so it is with the philosopher. Once he stumbles upon the realization that God exists, he is not satisfied with simply knowing God as cause of existing things. He wants to know this cause intimately. He wants to know this cause personally. And this is where things get difficult for the poor philosopher. He has reached the apex of his natural reasoning, the, the nature or the essence of the Godhead, his, the God's inner workings, his inner life lies beyond his deductive capabilities. God, as he truly is, is a, is a light inaccessible to unaided human reason, right? He cannot truly know God without some extrinsic help. Hence the need for the other discipline, theology, right? Theology is the science that has as its proper and direct object God in and of himself. So the theologian studies the nature or the essence of the Godhead. It answers not directly the question, does God exist? Because as we have seen, the philosopher you know, stumbles and wrestles with this question, but rather ponders the more perplexing question of what God is like or who God is. The obvious inherent difficulty to the science is that the answer to this question seemingly exceeds human reason. The answer lays beyond man's capacity to know. So it seems the theologian is in a bind. He's in a difficult situation. But thankfully, God has freely chosen to reveal himself to us, to make himself known to us, to disclose his inner life to us. And quite prudently, he has done so progressively, right, throughout history. First through the prophets and the patriarchs of old, and then perfectly and completely through the incarnation. Um, the, the literal enfleshment, that's what carne means, the taking on of human flesh, of human bones, of human skin. It's that immaterial God takes upon flesh in order to make known, to make tangible that which is, that which is intangible, to make material that which is by nature immaterial. And then, then this final manifestation of the inner life of God through the incarnation has been continually passed down safeguarded and transmitted to successive generations by the apostolic tradition of Holy Mother Church. And the central tenet of God's inner life that has been revealed to us, which I like to briefly discuss um, today, is God's triune nature. God has revealed himself to us as a trinity of persons, that God is an undivided unity existing in a trinity of persons. Now, granted that this is a perplexing paradox that cannot be fully understood here and now, but we can begin to apply our rational skills, our rational faculties 
to explore this divinely revealed mystery. But before we do so, we always have to remember that although we're exploring the Trinity, God is nonetheless a unity. He is one, right? We know this both through divine revelation, uh, through sacred scripture, Deuteronomy 6.4, for example, says that the Lord our God is one Lord. But also we know this from reason, right? Reason is able to deduce the fact that God is, in fact, one. We see this, for example, in the Summa. Again, St. Thomas makes this very clear. He has this wonderful argument wherein he argues that since the world is so wonderfully and harmoniously ordered, one thing providing for the need of something else, that there must be one being doing the ordering, since, as he says, quote, many are reduced into one order by one better than by many. It's this whole idea that if you have many cooks in the kitchen, right, you're going you're gonna to ruin the souffle. And so you need just one ordering principle in order to have true order and harmony. But maintaining the unity of God, we must also, at the same time, and really in the same breath, also assert that there is a plurality in the Godhead. And again, this is known principally through divine revelation. God has revealed this uh, truth to us. He hints at it in the Old Testament, but he makes it explicit in the New for example, you have the baptism of Christ, in which you have the second person of the divine trinity standing in the waters of the Jordan with the voice of the heavenly father speaking, this is my beloved son, listen to him. At the same time, of course, you have the Holy Spirit, the third person of the divine trinity descending from on high, anointing the second person, the third person of the blessed trinity. And you also have the great commissioning of the 12 um, in Matthew 18, in which the divine names are explicitly enumerated. Go, baptize all people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And notice it's the name. There's one, but nonetheless, there are three persons being articulated. So how are we to understand this paradox? The unity of the Godhead and the plurality of the Godhead. Well, we know what we are not to do, right? We cannot rely on our imaginations. Our imaginations are this wonderful faculty that we have, which is capable of looking upon the material world and making mental images. They are great in many disciplines, but not for theology and philosophy. In theology and philosophy, the imagination is a hindrance, and we must constantly be putting our imagination in its rightful place, right? Philosophy and theology is concerned with the immaterial. And so we, can't make, so we cannot make pictures of the immaterial. We cannot allow our imaginations when we're thinking about God and the Godhead, his unity and his divinity, to simply conjure up an image of a three-leaf clover or a triangle and say, aha, now I know the Trinity. This is not the case. Those images are not helps. As I mentioned, they are hindrances. They allow us perhaps at best to swallow the doctrine of the Trinity, but they do not allow the intellect to wrestle with the doctrine. God is not a three-leaf clover. God is not a triangle. So in theology and philosophy, we must constantly tell our imaginations to be quiet. 
and to allow our intellects to be formed to the whole truth that has been divinely revealed, both through sacred tradition and sacred scripture. So what has been revealed about the doctrine of the Blessed Trinity? We can summarize the doctrine in four short, terse statements. First, in the one divine nature, there are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Two, that the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is neither the Father nor, nor the Son. Right? No one of the persons is either of the other. Three, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And finally, and fourth, there are not three gods, but only one God. All of this is nicely summarized in the preface of the Mass, the Feast of the Holy Trinity, in which it is written, quote, Father, all-powerful and ever-living God, we joyfully proclaim our faith in the mystery of your Godhead, three persons, equal in majesty, undivided in splendor, yet one Lord, one God, ever to be, ever to be adored in your everlasting glory. Now to conclude, our discussion on theology and philosophy of knowing immaterial realities, such as God as cause in the Blessed Trinity, I want to emphasize a point here that St. Thomas makes ardently clear. It may seem to us moderns that the knowledge of immaterial things is less certain than knowledge ascertained by the quote-unquote hard sciences. That is, that such knowledge of the immaterial is less trustworthy because it is more speculative in nature, that it is a lower science than the hard science. Aquinas makes the argument, however, that the sciences that studies God are the more noble of sciences. He argues that one science is nobler of another by reason of its higher worth, of its object of study, and by reason of its greater certitude. And in both respects, argues Thomas, the study of God is nobler. Right? Obviously, it has a higher worth of its subject matter because it considers not material things, but immaterial things, things that are above matter, metaphysical realities. And the other sciences principally concern themselves with material realities. But he also makes the claim that it also has greater certitude because other science derives their certitude from the natural light of human reason, which we know is prone to error. Whereas this particular science, the science of philosophy to some respect, and theology in particular, derive their certitude not from human reason, but from the divine mind, right? God reveals himself, which cannot mislead or lead or be erroneous. So, with all that being said, do begin with confidence to study the mysterious and glorious and enchanted world of philosophy and theology. By God's grace, right, his revelation, and hopefully with the supernatural gift of faith, and of course our, our effort, our intellectual engagement with the mysteries, we will begin to see the world as it truly is. Thank you.